doing today, Chris? I'm in good shape, Mike. In the middle of winter, looking forward to Christmas. How about you? Same thing. Looking forward to uh, food. Some time off, <laughs> some nice food, family around. Yeah. Yeah, always, always, exactly, always good food. Having the family around, you couldn't ask for more than that. Yeah, right. It should be a good time. Get your shopping done? Oh, not yet, no. Well, there's a little bit left to finish off, but that'll be okay. It will be sorted and done. That's good. Yeah. Well, it's a good time for reflection at the end of the year. And again, reaching out to our podcast listeners, thanking them for their listening into our podcast, hopefully getting something out of them. That's the uh, purpose that we're here for. Yeah, we hope so. And I hope it's been an interesting thing to follow as we've been going through the year. Yep. And I definitely want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Likewise, Merry Christmas. What's the podcast topic for today, Chris? I think today we'll discuss all things controls for the test cell. Sounds good. A big list because it's a complex system and we've got to look at how we wrap all those parts together. Yeah, that that is an important point is integrating all the subsystems, yep. So should we start off with the ventilation? Yeah, let's do that. To talk a little bit about the ventilation, when we say that, we can say HVAC, ventilation, they're, they're kind of tied together. And what we're talking about is the test cell ventilation, we're talking about the control room ventilation, the heating, the cooling. But when it comes to the, the test cell itself, you've got, you've, we've gone down the path of we've selected or designed that we need to move X amount of air. We need these size fans, this type of fan, but we need controls because ultimately we're trying to control a temperature or ventilate the cell to a certain point. No, no different than a thermostat on a wall for the control room. It's still a form of controls, but it's a standalone thing, right? It's a thermostat. Okay. So one, one part of that is, is controlling the ventilation of the air into the engine under test. If we're looking yeah. at controlling the air in, we've talked previously about having, having a system for delivering air to the engine, but that has to be controlled. And I guess it's then a case of monitoring both the temperature and the humidity of that air exactly. and delivering it to a certain characteristic. Right. The way you look at it as, as the most simplistic version of controls is a human being. That if you don't have a lot to control, you may be able to get away with a person that's changing things on the fly to control it. That's the most simplest form. But when you have so many subsystems, that no longer applies as the human interface is required, but not that extent. They can't control all that. They can't monitor all that with their own two eyes. So you have to have those subsystems. You have to have those controls in place. And the typical way of doing it is via PLC, a programmable logic controller. Right. Programmable logic controller would be something that is could be overarching controlling subsystems, subcontrollers. And again, I'm not going to dive too much into detail behind it, but just to illustrate the that you have something that's looking at sensors and it's behaving a certain way. If it sees something from a sensor input coming back to it, it's behaving a certain way. It's it's doing something after it sees a sensor that maybe it's getting too hot in a test cell, so it's telling it to open up a vent or a damper to modulate the air temperature inside a test cell. Okay, so in this case, we, we'd probably have three of those those circuits looking after the ventilation for the engine, the mm-hmm. vent- also the ventilation for the actual test room itself, right. and then ventilation for the control room. Correct. I mean, so that's a more of a domestic situation, the control room, but the other two would be holding to specific temperature to suit the type of testing that you're undertaking. Right, okay. correct. But then that same logic spreads through other parts of the test cell. 
we talk about the the fuel system and how we control that, and that's got to be some of the same aspects in terms of the temperature of the fuel, but the actual fuel control would then link into the fuel measurement as well, I presume. So right. more complex for that one. Yeah. And if you look at it from a prior podcast that we did, when we talked about fuel systems, we talked about two main fuel systems. One is a fuel system that's doing the controls inside the test cell. And one's the main fuel facility system that's controlling the fuel pumps in the tanks, supplying the fuel to the test cell itself. So when you look at the controls aspect of it, you're looking at both of those as controlling both of those aspects working together. So you want to make sure you've got the right pressure coming into the building of fuel. You want to make sure mm-hmm. once the fuel's inside the building, you're controlling the temperature through that subsystem. But the facilities controls, depending upon how you design it, and in my past, I've I've done the facility controls monitoring the main fuel supply system coming into the building, making sure all the apparatus were working correctly. Okay, so this terms of the sort of basic control principle, it's monitor and control. Yes. In this case, you're monitoring the, the fuel delivery, the, the quantity of fuel coming in and how to maintain that. Correct. So, okay, PLC controls that or is that a different system? No, it's basically a PLC. Okay. Again, you know, the PLCs have been around for a long time. They've improved as time has time gone on and the technology and support for PLCs is more than it's ever been that I've seen before. And it's doing a lot more. PLCs have done a lot more than they've done in the past. So it's a common product to be used in this type of application. Okay. And I guess that will be applied also to the cooling system and the exhaust system, looking at a certain certain characteristics of those two and then controlling accordingly. Right. So use the cooling system, for example. So you've got pumps in that system. You've got sensors in that system that look at flows, look at temperatures. You have circuits in that system that are monitoring fans coming on and off based upon temperature settings in the cooling tower, in the cooling water system, in the cooling tower. So again, a lot of sensors coming into one location with the PLC looking at that information basically and saying, okay, I need to do this. And then either turning on a pump or speeding up a pump motor all the things that PLCs are totally capable of doing, but ultimately it's part of the facility's control. Right. And then for the exhaust, it would be a similar deal where you were looking to control typically the back pressure of the exhaust system by opening or closing dampers in that system. Right. And the, the back pressure part of that is the simulation typically of what the engine in the car would need to see when you're doing testing, conducting testing. So you need a certain amount of back pressure that simulates what a muffler and catalytic converter would cause being in the system. So you replicate that as much as possible. And one other aspect of that too would be from a health and safety perspective would be is you want the gases to be properly evacuated from the test cell through the exhaust system. So there may be evacuation fans or auxiliary fans that are tied in with the exhaust system to remove that from the test cell. Good point. So outside the control of the exhaust for performance, the safety side will be the monitoring of any leakage that might have occurred. Correct. And that will be the same presumably for the fuel system also if, if there's a fuel spill then you'd be looking for sensors to detect that as early as possible. Very, very good point. Very important point, Chris. The one thing that we're getting to when we listen to what we're talking about is that we're talking through the subsystems, but ultimately, how do they all interact together when there's an issue? So you bring up, say, for example, an exhaust leak inside the test cell. Right. Now, if you look at, you've got sensors inside the test cell detecting carbon monoxide or CO, 
you're going to want to the facility to do certain things if it detects it's going too high. For example, you may tell the test cell to stop running. So the engine comes to a stop. You may tell the, the ventilation system to fully circulate fresh air from the outside into the test cell to evacuate those CO levels till they get down to an acceptable safe level. And that would be a good example of integrating the subsystems to behave a certain way through your facility controls. Okay, so to ventilate it, so if, if there'd been a fuel spill, for example, we're taking away the fuel vapor, and if there was a, an exhaust leak, we're taking away the noxious fumes. Right. One important point is the difference between CO and hydrocarbons when you talk about raw fuel. Right. Right? One is primarily explosive, flammable. The other one is more of an inert gas that's dangerous to breathe. And you treat those differently how you want the facility to properly shut down and evacuate those gases. Because if you have a high hydrocarbon level, you want to be careful of turning anything on that could cause spark or ignition. So you need to set the facility controls to behave correctly that it doesn't cause more risk. Right. So consider the potential action and then work out how to keep that as safe as possible. Correct. Right. Okay, then. So if we go back to the controls for the basic requirement of the test cell operating the dyno, that's going to be a, a more complex controller because we're looking at how we can obviously control the speed and the load of the dyno, but there'll be various other aspects that go into that, and typically that will be the control that came with the dynamometer itself. Right. Typically, when you buy your subsystems, you're going to want them to operate as designed, as advertised, and typically to do that, you need to buy the associated equipment with it to perform the way it's designed to perform. Example, case in point, dynamometer. If you want the, typically, if you want the best control of that dynamometer, you want to buy, if the manufacturer of that dynamometer offers it, a control system with it. Because you know the engineering, the design, the testing have all been wrapped around that operating together to give you the best performance. So that's then got to be applied to the test cell according to whatever instructions, but given the different layouts of different test cells, does that communication has to occur between the control room and the, the dyno itself. So different cabling would go between the two to do to carry that out. Right. So we've, you've mentioned the controls for the dynamometer. From a facility aspect, you may want to look at certain information coming from that controller that you can use from your facility perspective to monitor and properly shut down in case of emergencies. Yeah, so you, you're monitoring some things in order to run the dyno, and monitoring some things to to obtain test results. Right. Different circuits, different aspects of the control. Correct. Okay, and the yep. same would apply to the to the engine under test. That would be typically controlled by whichever manufacturer's engine is being used, but we've got to integrate that into the overall control system so the dyno control and the engine control run together. Correct. And again, you're given perfect examples of the sometimes complexity of making sure that everything is integrated properly, all the subsystems. In the test cell environment, you can't have a standalone control system that is allowed to supersede your facility controls from the environmental health and safety aspect. So you need to consider all the subsystems and you need to consider all the safety aspects of it. Okay, so you'll finish up almost like a, a failure mode and effect analysis, looking through the whole system to make sure it's operating as one and not as a number of separate systems. Yeah, another good point, and that's exactly what you would do. You would do an FMEA on the test cell itself to make sure you've captured all the risks associated with what you're about to build. Okay, then. 
So we started off talking a little bit about the safety side of this and how we look after the operators in there as well, because although most of the time the operators are in the control room and monitoring from outside the test cell, there are times when the when the operator has to go into the test cell to change something, to move something. So I guess we've got to make sure that they're entirely safe under that time. So have ventilation protocols, have different control aspects when the operator goes into the room? Yes, and, and there's different ways of addressing that and designing that into the system. It's up to the individual owner of the test cell to determine what they think is the safety requirements that they need to put in place to keep their people safe. But when you look at some of the examples of what the industry does is, for example, you can talk about e-stop systems. An e-stop system is an important system utilized in a test cell that in an emergency situation, and when we say emergency situation, there's life on the line that somebody could get hurt, and that's first and foremost over everything else that we protect for that. You have a series of e-stop buttons located in key positions to be actuated to immediately actuate to a certain strategy or a sequence of events that occur when you depress this button. And that, again, is is when you hit this button, you want things to stop quickly. You want things to come down. You want things to stop spinning. You want to you reduce the risk or hazard that caused you to push that button to begin with or minimize that. Right, but I guess that's, again, another system question because you can't just expect all the brakes to go on suddenly. It's got to be, even in an emergency, wound down in a safe way. Right. And the key thing is, is it's up to the owner to determine how they want to do that. And one of the other key attributes to that, too, that I need to mention is the e-stop system is typically the overriding system over everything else, meaning that that takes priority. When you hit that button, it doesn't matter what is happening around it for the perspective of e-stop function has to occur and a sequence of events has to occur no matter what with a 100% confidence level. Right. So when you hit it, whether they're trying to control an engine speed or they're trying to control a temperature in a test cell to 72 degrees Fahrenheit, it's overridden by the e-stop function. It's a hardware, not a software logic system. So it's going to do exactly what it's supposed to do 100% of the time when you hit that button, so whatever re- you programmed it to do. Regardless of the stage of a test, it's going to, there's some dangerous situation and it'll, it'll close that down as quickly as possible. Right. There's different strategies. There's different ways you can do that. But the example is if you're running a dynamometer and an engine and the drive shaft fails, you want to bring the spinning products down or the spinning dynamometer, the spinning engine down as quickly as possible without causing more risk yeah, of damage. Yeah, well, we've both experienced that occurring in a test cell. And in my case, I wasn't in the test cell. I was in the control room. But the uh, the damage caused by a mechanical failure in the dry in the drive line is catastrophic. It is, and you never want to uh, have to go through that process, but you need to be prepared for it, right. and you need to make sure that when you need to do it, it works a hundred percent of the time. That's that's some of the criteria with an e-stop system as far as the redundancy built into e-stop systems. So there's always a backup if the first primary fails. If there's a backup to it. Yeah, now it's a pity to to finish on an example like that, but it's a very significant control you're talking of. It is, and again, that's where you get into the human interface part of it, right? So the e-stop button's not going to press itself. There's a person that's interfacing with it. So you you ask yourself the question saying, hey, if if I'm building a test cell and I'm designing all these sensors and safeties built in, that if it gets too hot, it shuts down. If it runs too fast, it shuts down. If there's a fire, God forbid, if there's a fire... 
the fire is being suppressed with whatever extinguishing system is in the test cell. But there will always be that need for the interface from a human being because in my years of experience, and Chris, you probably can speak to it as well, is I've seen the operator be a stopgap to understanding what's happening with the test cell prior to the event happening, seeing the trends of how the engine's behaving, seeing the trends of how the facility's performing, and being able to detect a possible event or yeah. preventive event from occurring. Yeah, sometimes so, some some quite subtle indications, but you get a first in, a first indication that something's gone wrong. Right. So and again, it could be very, and typically is sometimes very, very subtle. One of the skill sets of an operator is your eyes, ears, and nose. That's exactly one of the skill attributes. So you're able to see, you're able to hear things that somebody else may not be able to hear because they're used to, to running a test cell and hearing the normal noises and being able to detect what's not normal. Right, right. Smelling, just smelling something that something's getting hot, something's heating up, and there may not be a sensor on it. It may be something rubbing against something in inside a, on an engine, on an accessory system on an engine where it's about to have a failure. Those are where the operator really adds substantial value to making sure the test cells run safely. Okay, so, and in those circumstances, as well as the e-stop actual control logic, it's actually the physical location of it as well to make sure it can be activated readily. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. We covered a lot of ground there, Mike, but we, uh, we did. Complex, we did. complex picture. Yeah. I, again, the message is... is how everything integrates. That's the important part of identifying the subsystems and making sure that they integrate, they work together. Yeah, so I got to look at it as a whole and make sure we're covering the entire scope of the test procedures and the operating equipment. Right, okay. exactly. That's great. That'll be it then. All right, thanks, Mike. All right, you bet. Thank you for listening to Dino Insights presented by Fruit. If there are any engine testing topics you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at foodino.com.